You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My history can beat up your politics. On a train depot in Oakland, California, during the 1932 presidential campaign, President Herbert Hoover stopped to address a crowd who he thought would be made up of supporters. But there is a little problem. No one had done the kind of thorough presidential advance teamwork that would be second nature today. Nearby the train stop, a large municipal drainage project that had not been completed sat vacant, and homeless people, out-of-work farmhands, factory workers, and hobos, fashioned a home, sealing both ends of large pipes shut. There were so many homeless people near this rail stop that by sheer force of numbers, the good, decent Republican supporters of Herbert Hoover could not get anywhere near the president. And Hoover ended up addressing a crowd of people who didn't feel very helped by his policies and who let him know what they thought of the job he was doing in some pretty foul language. If the 1932 campaign was a little bit difficult for Herbert Hoover, that shouldn't be surprising. In the years between 1929, when he took office, and 1933, the gross domestic product of the country was cut in half. The nation suffered from, first, the debilitating stock market crash, which stunned investors, and then a great three years of depression that followed, which unemployment soared. President Herbert Hoover, a progressive, new kind of Republican, was elected in much fanfare in 1928 on the departure of the bland Cal Coolidge, did not, as it's commonly asserted, refrain from doing anything at all in the face of the Depression. He did apply the best economic medicine of his time and his way of thinking. He cut taxes. By cutting taxes, people would have more money to spend. And businessmen would have more money to invest with. A stimulative effect would ensue. However, it didn't work. The Depression got worse. And in fact, it was not until 1934 when his predecessor Roosevelt instituted a vast new array of taxes, including corporate taxes, inheritance taxes, dividend taxes, gift taxes, and excise taxes, that the economy actually improved in any way. But if people had more money in their pockets from the tax cut, why didn't Hoover's solution work? Well, in his case, there was a problem, because not only were many people unemployed and not generating an income to tax anyway, but in the go-go 20s, taxes had already been cut twice under Calvin Coolidge in 1924 and in 1926. And at this point, the highest bracket was 25%, and that was on marginal income above $100,000, an unthinkable income in those years. Other rates could be as low as 1.1%. A taxpayer with an income of $5,000, a big income then, was paying about $16.58. And so, with Hoover's tax cut, 
would get a break and only pay about $5.63. They would have roughly $11 to spend in the economy. Yet this step was hailed as a bold step to fight the Depression. Tax cuts are part of today's political warfare. And they aren't necessarily that new. In effect, the first tax cut was in 1872. But at the time, it wasn't clear to most Americans that they were getting a tax cut. Not all Americans did get a cut. In effect, the tax cuts we know today only began in the 1920s. But do tax cuts work? What's the history of tax cuts, and do they make any economic sense? In 1975, Gerald Ford decided that each American should get a check in the mail, a tax refund of $200, in an effort to stimulate the economy. And in 2001, George W. Bush, with some urging from Congress, would also advance a part of a larger tax cut to taxpayers in the form of a $300 check per single person and $600 per married couple. In both cases, the rebate did little to change the economy, or at least little that could be traced. Timing may be an issue. The 1975 checks hit after the recession that had started in 1973 was declared over by most economists. And in the case of the 2001 rebate, the last checks had not all been sent out when the 9-11 attack happened, making measurement difficult. When John F. Kennedy ran for president in 1960 amid a sluggish economy, he vowed to get the country moving again. After his election, his advisors, led by chief economist Walter Heller, urged a classically Keynesian solution. And Keynes was an economist who advocated putting more money into the public's hands so that consumption would increase and the economy would benefit. Heller suggested running a deficit to stimulate growth. But Kennedy had pledged a balanced budget and so was not thrilled with the idea of running a deficit. And also, he had to get his plan sold through some Southern conservatives who weren't going to budge on such a large and ambitious spending plan. So Kennedy settled on a tax cut plan. The tax rate on the wealthiest Americans was lowered from 90, an extremely high level, allowing persons to just have and keep 10% of their income, to just over 70%. There would be a slight reduction, 4% in the corporate tax, and taxes across the board would be reduced. With the view of tax cuts today as a largely Republican, largely conservative idea, it's hard to understand that Kennedy had to sell his plan to the business world and conservatives in Congress. When he addressed the New York Economic Club in December 1962, he deliberately dressed up his program in language he thought businesses would like. He noted that the then-current system of taxation reduces the financial incentives for personal effort, investment, and risk-taking. Ted Sorensen, Kennedy's speechwriter, later explained they wanted Kennedy to sound like Hoover in order to sell the cut to the business community. But Kennedy was no Hoover. Kennedy's tax cut plan was intended to get more money into consumers' hands so that they could shop. There was little interest in cutting taxes for investment, the reason given by many supply-siders in Reagan and Bush. The Revenue Act of 1964 was aimed at the demand rather than the supply side of the economy, said Arthur Oaken, one of the Kennedy's economic advisors. And Kennedy's plan would pass in 1964, three months after his assassination. Kennedy's December 1962 speech to the New York Economic Club 
is often the speech that anyone supporting supply-side economics will use for quotations to support their beliefs. In doing so, they are avoiding the ample evidence that Kennedy's pro-business rhetoric at that speech was largely strategic in order to help get his plan passed. Kennedy was looking for short-term stimulative effect in the economy from the demand side up. More money in people's hands, go out and spend, improve the economy. When Reagan took office in 1981, the largest part of his initial program was a tax cut of monumental proportions. The Kemp-Roth tax cut, officially called the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981, reduced marginal income tax rates in the United States by 25% over three years, the top rate falling from 70% to 50%, and the bottom rate dropping from 14 to 11%. But in this case, the tax was largely brought about not so much to stimulate the economy from the bottom up, but to produce a favorable environment for businesses to invest. This was a supply-side tax cut. The idea was that if there was more money available for investment, businesses would take chances, create more jobs. This was the so-called Laffer curve. A cut in taxes would lead directly to an increase in growth. Any decrease in in government revenues from the tax cut, according to the Laffer curve, would be more than made up for by the increase in the newly buzzing economy, which produced more tax revenue. So did the Reagan tax cut work? Well, it is clear that there was a great 1980s economic expansion. From 1983 to 1986, the economy grew from a rate of 2.5% a year to 6.2% in GNP. But how much was the result of the tax reduction fueling the economy? And how much was the result of increased government spending in the form of defense spending that Reagan instituted? It's difficult to parse. The income tax that's so central to us today did not exist in early America. The first true income tax was implemented in Britain by William Pitt the Younger in his budget of December 1798 to pay for weapons and equipments in preparation for the Napoleonic Wars. Pitt's new graduated income tax began at a levy of less than 1% on incomes over 60 pounds and increased up to a maximum of 10% on incomes over 200 pounds. These were large incomes in those days. His tax was levied from 1799 to 1802, and then it was abolished. In America, the Constitution specifically limited Congress's ability to impose direct taxes. If there was to be a direct tax, according to the Constitution, the federal government had to distribute it back in proportion to each state's census population. So the national government could only collect on behalf of the states. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. They did not want head taxes and property taxes. They felt that such taxes were likely to be abused and they bore no relation to the activities in which the federal government had a legitimate interest. And from the founding of the nation until 1913, this held and the main source of, gov- of revenue for the federal government was from tariffs, taxes on imports. This clause of the Constitution was forgotten during the Civil War when the United States government imposed the first personal income tax, on August 5, 1861, as part of the Revenue Act of 1861. It was for 3% of all incomes over $800. It was rescinded in 1872, which in effect makes 1872 the time of the first income tax cut. The income tax was then attempted in the late 1800s, but then ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court and an income tax amendment was passed in 1909 and ratified in 1913 as part of a progressive agenda. In 1913, only 1% of people paid income taxes. During World War I, the top rate in the U.S. was raised to 67% for income that was over $2 million, a very small percentage of the population. In 1918, only 5% of the population paid federal income taxes. It was only after the 1930s and the New Deal that the tax started to apply to everyone and rates were increased. But the intention of income taxes from William Pitt the Younger, really until Herbert Hoover, was to be a a marginal tax on excessive income. So do tax cuts work? The immediate effect of a tax cut is obvious. It's a cut in the government's income and an increase in income for taxpayers. But it's tough to predict what happens next for a very simple reason. We don't know which those two actors, the government and the taxpayers, will do, despite what politicians say. The government does spend money, which factors into the economy. The government does buy goods and services from companies and individuals, which does factor into the economy. So cutting their income is a real factor. Taxpayers can stimulate the economy, but they can also choose to save their money or they can choose to buy goods from a foreign country. If there's a tax cut and the government cuts spending and taxpayers increase their spending on Americans' goods, combination is neutral. If there's a tax cut and the government maintains its spending while the taxpayers increase theirs, spending their money on goods sourced within the country, this can provide a stimulus to the country. And it is this scenario that's often envisioned by those who support tax cuts. But if the government's receiving less income and maintaining its spending, then it's incurring debt. And only if revenues from the increased economy are enough to cover the debt would the tax cut make economic sense. This could have a negative effect on the economy. However, some supply-siders will argue that increased saving 
will provide an indirect stimulus to the economy because the additional supply of capital of money will tend to reduce the interest rate. In practice, it's likely that a mixture of these effects will occur, and the net effect of any tax cut will depend on the balance between them. Therefore, a tax cut can be said to be a function of the overall state of the national economy. One of the most difficult things in the tax cut debate is that it's, it's impossible to find in history, or in recent history, a perfectly clean example. Often, as in the case of the 80s, tax cuts were followed by some tax increases and certainly a lot of deficit spending. So it's difficult to see what the problem was initially in the economy and what action, whether it was the stimulus provided by defense spending or the stimulus of the tax cut that led to the economic recovery. On the other hand, George W. Bush's 2001 tax cut occurred nearly the same time as the 9-11 attacks, making it difficult to call it non-effective because its non-effectiveness could always be linked to that tragic event and its certain impact on the economy. A 2004 report from the Congressional Research Service says that the 2001 recession was unusually long and sluggish in recovery compared to others. For example, in the case of the 1973 and the 1981 recessions, it took just one month to show positive employment growth. After the 1990 recession, it took 11 months. But for the 2001 recession, it took 21 months after the recession was over, in other words, when GNP was growing, to show employment growth. That is the longest prolonged decline in employment since the Great Depression. And according to the Congressional Research Study Report, that prolongment is so highly unusual that it makes it hard to argue that tax cuts had any impact. And no evidence of the common arguments of supply-siders have worked, that you know, hours worked have been increased even though taxes were reduced, labor participation have actually declined, in fact. Uh, supply-siders who suggest there can be an increase in personal saving if you reduce taxes, possibly leading to beneficial interest rates. Personal saving fell between 2000 and 2003 during the period when taxes were reduced. In terms of the 2001 rebate, the checks that were sent out, a University of Michigan study concluded that only about one-fourth of the money was spent. Three-quarters were used to save or to pay down debt, which means only $75 per individual from the $300, which was taken from government, was introduced to the economy. The history of tax cuts has been ambiguous at best, and it's been so muddied with other factors that it's often hard to discern where the impact is. In the end, what may be the undoing of tax cuts, as the congressional research studies suggest, is that they don't have an impact that survives past the economics of the day. And if they don't, then maybe they're not a factor at all. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.